Welcome to the People First Inequality podcast. In a time of crisis and fast change, this podcast is a space to reflect and learn with changemakers on how to tackle inequality. We are excited you joined us for the third episode of this special series on emergent agency in time of COVID. It is widely recognized that the pandemic and lockdowns led to an increase in poverty and inequality, but also that people showed incredible resilience and agency in responding to difficult and rapidly changing circumstances. For this series, we teamed up with Oxfam, who spent the last 18 months collecting lessons. We highlight the stories of four changemakers that responded to the pandemic in new and innovative ways. From social entrepreneurs to organizers and movement leaders, what did they see, do and learn in these past two years? How did they adapt and what does this tell us about how to move forward? My name is Barbara van Pasen, and today we will dive into another topic close to my heart and one that has proven incredibly relevant in this pandemic. Accountability is one of those words often used, but too little practiced. So how to get governments to respond to people's needs in times of crisis? And how to support young people's leadership in tackling misinformation and making communities' voices heard? This and more in today's episode. So grab a coffee or tea and listen in on the conversation. I'm very happy to have Narayana Dikari here with me, the co-founder and lead of the Nepal Accountability Lab, who have been doing amazing work in getting citizens' voices heard. And they've been doing this with an approach that has proven particularly valuable during moments of crisis, starting with the earthquake in 2015, and more recently, of course, during the COVID pandemic. So I'm very interested to hear from him what they've learned and what's happened and how they're taking this forward, and maybe also what they need from others in continuing this important work. So welcome, Narayan. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. And nice to be here, Barbara. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think it's really great we have you on this podcast and in this conversation around emergent agency. And maybe I just want to start off with, you know, how are you? I'm doing great overall, but thank you so much. Thanks. That's really good to hear. And the reason we're speaking is that we have been going through and are still going through a major global pandemic. Actually, before we do that, I would like to ask you a bit more personal question. If there is some surprising thing that you might have learned about yourself in the past two years, you know, often these these periods of big change and crisis are also times of learning. Is there something that surprised you about yourself or that you (laughs) took away? There are a lot of surprising. One is uh, you cannot rely on everything you have or, or you, you usually consider um, those are your strength. Like you have organization, you have team, you have amazing internet or you have networks because when you have disaster and some, something like COVID pandemic, there's a lot of unexpected things happens. The learning is you cannot just rely on what you have already. You need to keep constantly thinking of innovative ways to make yourself happy, you make your organization more active and to be connected with your communities. And one of the big surprises personally for me is I thought working from home before the pandemic would be fun. You can work, but you can still be at home. You can play with your children. We used to do a little bit, but then during COVID being home, all the time working, managing stressful work, but at the same time, the expectation from the family was a bit different. So Mm -hmm. uh, that was not easy as I thought. 
And another thing is you need to be really, really smart and using technology and all this kind of online stuff, which I have learned a lot about social media campaigns, creative campaigns around it. Yeah. And that's something we'll also be diving into a bit more in our conversation, uh, because I think that's been an important part of the changes that you went through. But of course, there's also many others trying to bring around social change have have been dealing with. So I think it's important to to learn from those experiences and, and to share those with others. Thank you for sharing those personal notes. I want to start with who you are and how you ended up, you know, co-founding and leading the accountability lab in Nepal. Can you say how you arrived at this organization? I used to work with the youth organization almost 15 years ago as one of the leader to mobilize young people from different sectors to really work to create opportunity for young people so that young people do not just remain within the framework of volunteerism or mobilized by others, for example, political parties. We really wanted to engage young people on decision-making. So with that background, I eventually changed my professions and career, working more on governance and accountability. The real problem of all these issues that we are facing, for example, there's a lack of education, lack of health, lack of in public infrastructures or lack of public service delivery, the problem, you know, these are problems often seen as a symptoms, but we are actually not dealing the cause. And I realized that accountability is key. So I gave up everything and start the Accountability Lab Nepal from the very, very beginning from, from the scratch. It was more of an interest and passion, uh, you know, to really wanted to do something different within the accountability space, you know, by engaging creative young people in finding innovative solutions in dealing with all kinds of, you know, patronism, patronism, corruption, and, and lack of accountability. That's really interesting. And I think we'll show, I mean, we'll also find in, in now diving into the sort of COVID-19 hitting the world and hitting Nepal, just how relevant accountability is. Could you take us back to that moment when the pandemic hit and maybe when you realized for the first time that this is big and this has implications for the work that we do? So at the beginning, we're just doing regular duties where so eventually, you know, things get worse. Um, so this is how things went. And then, you know, we had to decide very quickly uh, because there was a lockdown. We wanted to continue to do our work. I also wanted to do something interesting for people that might make sense for them to navigate their, their life by getting the right information and kind of right kind of channel. So this is how we, you know, eventually we began this civic actions uh, teams uh, coronavirus campaign. Yeah, tell me a bit a bit more about that, the civic action teams, because I think it's at the core of what you do and it played an important role in your COVID response. Can you say a little bit more about what it was that you did at that period? Sure. The CCC, the Coronavirus Civic Campaign, is a platform that distributes the factual information to the citizen, to the stakeholders, to the government, so that the decisions uh, become more scientific, contextual, and more local. So the idea was when the COVID hit, or even during the earthquake, there was a number of rumors spreading around. So we thought, you know, why not we track those rumors and tackle them with the relevant facts? And to do that, we use our existing network of young champions, you know, accountability incubators, you know, the integrity icon, civil servants network, the civil society network. And even though they were all restricted within home, but thanks to internet, it was still on and we could 
leverage those networks, spreading those messages and connecting individuals on the ground. And we have the net, we have the, the network of local leaders who are active on the ground. And eventually we also reach out to local governments, their leaders, elected representatives, the civil societies, media, and the public servants. And we're able to convene various meetings, discuss about issues, challenges, and the solution. So we basically become a voice of the voiceless. And then eventually we begin to track information about how government being spending money on COVID response. So what we call follow the money, which is about getting the information out about how government allocated funding, how they're spending, is there a missing in, in resources or is there's a mismanagement going on. So we have published all this information in open data format so that agency, you know, media could, could use it. So we had cases of a lot of local medias and international medias, including BBC, they called us and they relied on our information to further investigation and reportings. And we also encourage the local government to publish the expenditures, their COVID response plans, and the, the, you know, all that relief efforts into their social medias or website or any kind of format they could use during the, during the crisis. And we help them to design templates, to design you know, all kinds of social media campaigns for them. So we were acting as a breeze for the organization, for the individuals and for the communities. That's really interesting. You really play that connecting role, I think. You're very close to the communities. You work with young people from the communities that are affected. I think what you're saying speaks to a lot of people across the globe because those rumors, you know, that misinformation, the lack of transparency of what government was doing, where money was going, I think that's something that many will recognize wherever they are. And, and many have been looking also for ways to, to deal with that. I wonder if you could tell a little bit more about some of these elements. So you have these networks, they were established. I think that's an important part of the story. Could you say a little bit more about how that work shifted and what drives those young people from the communities and other frontline activists you work with to, I mean, put in a lot of effort because this must have been a big effort of both collecting voices, linking people and doing all that investigative work. I think one of the incentives for the people that we work is they are very active, they're young, and they're creative individuals in their communities, and they're also ambitious, aspiring leaders now and for the future. They've been always active in the communities, and they have the ownership and also have the credibility because they're from the same communities. And why they were interest, further motivated and interested to, to work in this process during COVID is that because their activities on the ground were limited. And they wanted to do something, but somehow not everyone has enough knowledge and, and the capacity to mobilize themselves online. They needed platform, they needed some support. We here at, in Kathmandu with, with a large team, we could gather information, we could sort of create a repository of the information and build that uh, hub where everyone from different parts of the communities could reach out and exchange information and use each other's knowledge, strength, and create a synergy. So there was a time when they, they wanted to show the extraordinary leadership in, in serving their own people. And let me give you one example. You know, in one of the rural areas, it's the far west, Nepal. There's a young man, I think about 20 years old, and he, he was a rickshaw you know, puller. He was living by, by pulling the rickshaw. 
And during the pandemic, because everything was restricted, lockdown, and there was no mobility, and his livelihood is in a livelihood was in question. So he could not earn money. But he did not frustrate it. He rather, you know, excited and he, he called us, look, I have a rickshaw and I want to use to help people who need help to go to hospital. And we help them to organize in social media to turn that rickshaw into a rickshaw ambulance. You know, a guy from a Muslim community, he can't even speak Nepali fluently, but he has such, such a great uh, ambition and, and passion to, to serve his communities by offering what he has. Yeah, that's amazing. Because there are often a lot of people that want to do something, but they don't really know how. And I, I guess you play a role in, in sort of making these connections and, and supporting them to do that. Where, of course, a lot of Nepalese coming back, you know, people had moved abroad for work or whatever reason, and they had to were forced to come back to Nepal. And I think they, they faced a lot of challenges, right? Say something about how you try to support them and what was what was important to make that work. Sure. I think, uh, you know, because we've been working in this issue uh, last uh, for last uh, seven years since the earthquake, even during the earthquake, a lot of Nepalese were abroad. So and they returned immediately to support their families. And then we realized that how important it is to work in these sectors because almost every alternative household has one or two persons working abroad and that is affecting our everyday lives. But during COVID, case began to emerge in, in all these Gulf countries and Malaysia. So they, these countries enforced very strict regulation. The Gulf countries, obviously their priorities was to their own citizens. So who left behind and migrant workers and, and the Nepalese were wanted to return. So, but the problem is that the Nepalese government were not able to bring them back. Second, because a lot of undocumented migrant workers, especially the women who were the domestic workers, have gone to these countries illegally in government terms. So they were not considered as a migrant workers. So they were not considered in the list of evacuation. So we constantly advocated for this. We work with the, with the, with the migrant workers networks in, in, in all these countries. They need to provide it with proper care, quarantine and transportation facilities to their homes. And there's another issue is about when they return, people are fear of being, in, you know, being infected from these migrant workers. So for them was reintegration to the community was very, very challenging at the beginning. It's a lot of stigma. Around. There's a lot of stigma around that. And the second largest, biggest, challenge is that because a lot of them were returned with empty-handed, no money. So mental health uh, issues were there. So I think our effort was to really, again, to collect all this data, information, and raise issue in our everyday bulletins, convene the stakeholders, authorities, and getting these stories among them and to really advocate for these issues. So migration was a very heavy lifted during pandemic and through our work. So that's an example, I guess, of an issue that really, I mean, you were already working on a, a bit, I think, but that really became much more important even during the pandemic. Can you say a little bit more about how you've played around with new ways of sharing the stories? And I'm curious to know what you've learned or what shifted during the pandemic. I think during the pandemic, what shifted is that getting this visual stories right from the communities, right from the people who are affected. And also getting stories from the leaders 
who remains in the communities. So we reach out to more female LGBTQI young leaders. We were trained on how to make visual stories using their mobile phone. And they went and sit with the communities, get all those stories. You know, very short and sweet video stories is more powerful than you have a lot of data and statistics, you know, putting into infographics. So, and the videos are not only powerful in terms of sharing or, or, or advocating for issues, but videos making process actually empower that individual's. Yeah, because then it's you not are someone doing... from outside coming in and, and shooting a video. Right? It's really them Absolutely. doing it. So then the one of the things that we were doing what we were doing mostly is we are collecting information and data from different uh, sources like government websites and documents and just kind of like creating that infographics and put it in the social media and organizing dialogue that was there. We also realized that, you know, because the pandemic was used and, and there's a limitation of all these communication channels. And I know that the social media also has a limitation and there are communities where, where they have no access to internet or they have no access to phone. And what we also did is we collaborated with the local radio station, the community oh, radios. Generally, the radios were considered one of the good ways to communicate to the rural communities. So we collaborated with the radio jockeys and all these radio stations. And then we really encouraged them to create some if they can, they can create a dedicated programs. If not, they can still incorporate some of these ideas about empowering people with facts. And, you know, it's really empowering each and everybody to dismantle this and misinformation so that the r- rumors not get spread. So, you know, that was some, one of my learnings that, you know, when there's a disaster or when there's other when the other means are, are not working well, you know the radio is also a good source, especially for those communities who don't have other access. I'm curious to hear a bit more about the role of the government and and the relationship with the government, because on the one hand, of course, sometimes they're a bit scared of accountability and governance work, and on the other hand, you're doing a major favor to do their job better. Um, and you're working with government also, supporting them in how to communicate better to people besides being more accountable. Can you say something about what shifted during the pandemic? Where were they absent or how did you maneuver that relationship? One of the biggest shifts uh, I noticed during this pandemic uh, compared to the earthquake was the government sometimes feel alone because when they enforce lockdown, citizens were inside home. And it was the only government were active and they were in, in the front line. For example, the health workers and the frontliner staffs. You know, at point they realized that how important it is to work with citizens. During the earthquake, there was like police army and they were working together with the communities, rescuing and supporting. But during this pandemic, the citizens were not allowed to come to the street. It was just the government. So they realized how important it is to collaborate with citizens and how important it is to listen to them. That's why they were... They were ready to collaborate with us. We will try to give you the best evidence. We will help you to collect data, information, to make your decision more transparent, accountable, and effective. It was also a safe that before they were fear of sharing information to the public. But during the pandemic, you know, they feel that, you know, the more transparent you are, the more easy it becomes when it comes about delivering services to the citizen. So they were ready to publish their data, publish their budget, publish their plans, publish their compensation programs to the public. So that then 
the public would tell you what to do and what not to do. So I have seen there's a lot of government have come forward and published their data and information. I think there was one very important shift that I yeah. have noticed. If you go some of the communities now, they begin to publish data in other other issues like you know beyond covid because at the end of the day these are local governments they elected from their public and they are the neighbors they are the friends they are the mm-hmm. uncles and aunts so they don't want to be blamed at the end of their tenure by the public by not doing anything and there there are good people within the government so they wanted to do something good they wanted to do something credible the pandemic somehow taught them how important it is to have evidence to listen to their citizen and to really build a consensus based on diversities and the interest of the public i was involved in a process last year around how european parliaments have been handling the pandemic and so much of what you're saying resonates in terms of the information and, and actually the, also the fact that government cannot do this on their own right and that's also Absolutely. something that i think your work shows is that and that it's really good to hear that they realize that they need to work with citizens they need to work with civil society to be able to provide the services and to do the work that they do. And from what I hear from you, they've, they've started to realize that a, a little bit. And it would be great if that stays on moving forward. I'm curious to hear from you what you think or what would be your next steps and maybe where you are at the moment in making sure that some of these positive changes that you see really stay on. Yeah, definitely. I think our duty is to continue push for change that we want to see in Nepal. Active citizens, responsible leaders, and accountable institutions. So we keep doing this thing, you know, reaching out to more communities, creating more networks, supporting more young, young people, and also encouraging young people to come up with good ideas to make difference in their communities. So we want to be a, a catalyst. We want to be a lubricant for creating new ideas, convening communities, and to really mobilize that community. There is a power in unlikely networks. Hmm. And really, there is a power in unlikely networks. People who are in music, arts, theater, films, technology, business, government, you know, inside government, outside government. So we need people from all backgrounds. So sharing learning, sharing challenges, collaboration. So the Accountability Lab is now more focusing on bringing ideas from you know, diverse communities, bringing energy into a, into a place and to really exploding it for the, for the benefit of the public. And we are always there and ready for any, any kind of future disaster. Again, mm-hmm. to really be ready, mobilize yourself, pivot ideas and to support communities. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting because I guess your work also shows is that having those structures in place, and, and I really like what you're saying around building those spaces where people find each other and build that trust and community on a day-to-day basis, but also for when, when a crisis hits again, because the pandemic has shown us how important it is to have those relations established. I do want to ask you also, before we close off, what would you like to see from others? How can others you know, support or enable the kind of work that you're doing? Are there particular shifts you would like to see in the world or in the support networks or a message you'd like to share? We all have to realize that our problem is so complex, but the solution might be easy. But we need to think from the complexity point of view. We need to think from the the point of kind of ecosystem that you need to build. So I want the communities, in all kinds of communities, from the very 
rural communities to the local government to the federal government and and the international communities to really listen to their people and to support you know young creative innovative ideas and to really promote those organically evolved initiatives that are playing well in different parts of the different parts of the world something that i always believe you can also call it as a as my theory is that there is always a disaster you know we had earthquake we had political conflicts we have to be ready all the time mm-hmm. so we have to be open minded conscious and to really keep you know always keep our brain empty ready to fill it with new ideas you know mindset and vision to change the world thank you for that that's such a an important reminder of how much work there is to do and the need to come together and that some of these crazy times have shown that that's possible. Thank you so much, Narayan, for sharing your story with us, for being with us today. Same here. Thank you so much. Thank you, listeners, for joining today's episode. I think the story of Narayan just shows just how relevant accountability is, especially in times of crisis, and also how to make it practical. It's inspiring that young people are motivated and adopt innovative tools to collect facts and stories that help communities being heard. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, leave a review and share with others as it will greatly help our conversation grow. And if you want to learn more about the Emergent Agency project or Narayan's work, please check the resources from today's show notes. Of course, also watch this space for another episode coming up and wishing you a good day. Ciao!